This morning we will be in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles and uh, want to, to turn there and, and get ahead, we'll, we'll get to that in just a few moments. And Last week I told you Sunday after Epiphany and I mentioned if you were here that in the, the Western church we, we focus that very often on the, um, the visit of the, the wise men, the magi to, to Jesus. Uh, in the Eastern Church, Epiphany, in the beginning of Epiphany, is focused on the, the baptism of Jesus. And this morning, while we're not necessarily focusing on the baptism, this, this scripture in John uh, kind of revolves around that event. And is, is the, the, the baptism of Jesus becomes the catalyst for, for the events that take place that we're going to spend some time uh, looking at this morning. Now, before I read that, I want to, uh, to share with you there, that one of the... The blessings of being in, in ministry for a number of years, to eight years now, is that uh, we get to share life together uh, as, as the, the body of Christ, as the family of God. And you've shared a number of um, kind of milestones in my life. And for Tony and I over the years, birthdays and, and um, celebrations around uh, graduations and now a son going to college. And, and these are all really kind of fun stuff. It's not always fun stuff, though. Um, today's a milestone. 20 years ago, about 20 years ago, shortly after Ryan was born, so a little under, uh, Tony had LASIK surgery done. Uh, huh? No, it was after Ryan was born. It was after Cass Ryan. After one of our kids was born. Um, She has to correct me. See, she could have let that go. You wouldn't have known. But anyway, she had LASIK surgery, so maybe a little less than 20 years ago. And because uh, Tony could not see. I, she gave me permission. She had like 2150 vision. It was bad. Um, and uh, so she had LASIK done and, and 2020 vision. And it was, it's been great. And in fact, the, it was the, the next morning was the first morning she ever woke up and could see me right away. She started crying. But um, <laughs> um, tears of joy is what it was. Um, anyway, the, the reason I'm sharing that with you is, is that I, I remember, I think it was maybe one of the follow-up visits, the, uh, the doctor that did the surgery saying that, that her vision would be fine until, you know, a normal progression. And the, the doctor's saying that for most people, not everybody, but for most people, sometime in their 40s, vision starts to slip a little bit. And, and that Tony and, and anybody would have to kind of be aware of that. And, and I can remember in my, you know, mid-20, late-20s arrogance thinking, I got 20-20 vision. I got no problem. I ain't worried about that. Before we turn to our scripture this morning... I have now crossed the threshold. <laughs> I have to wear glasses. No, you do not need to apply for that. I went in a couple weeks ago, and, and that 2020 vision is gone. And, uh, and I knew it because the back projector, I've, I've joked with you all, the back projector was getting a little fuzzy. I thought John was not doing his job on framing it up. It's very clear now. Um, and so I went in and got, uh, got my vision, vision checked. And these are not just glasses. These are progressives. If you, so I'm, 
I'm, oh, I know, and it's messing me up, all kinds of crazy. But, uh, but I wanted to share, so, and, uh, so I'm going to do my best to, to wear my glasses as needed. But it's really, uh, those of you who know, it's, it's, if I fall off the stage today, you'll know why. Because putting them on, uh, so here's what happens. I get them on Thursday. So I'm trying, you know, to, to wear them. And because they said, you, your eyes have to get adjusted to where to look. Those of you that have progressive, you've been, I've been getting advice on morning. Um, and, and that's good. And I appreciate it. I appreciate that. So I'm having to learn to, to see a little differently. And so I'm wearing them on Thursday. And uh, every time I'd walk by Cassie, she was giggling at me. And I'm like, what are you laughing at? And she's like, <laughs> you're old. <laughs> so so um, she's grounded for about three months now. But um, anyway, so let's, uh, let's, let's turn to the scripture that I can read so much easier now. John chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 29. This is what we read. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said... Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day John was there with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Friends and sisters, we pray God's blessing here on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would hear your question to us, your challenge. What do you want? And that our hearts would be open to your spirit, which guides our understanding of what it means to follow and, and to be a disciple of Christ. Bless these moments, Lord, and these words that are spoken, that they be of your Holy Spirit and pleasing to you. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. In the 80s, it was Michael Milken, most high profile. In the early 2000s, it was Martha Stewart. You know what links... Michael Milken and Martha Stewart, and there's others, but I think I heard somebody say it. Insider trading. They were found guilty, as, as others have been, of insider trading. That may be familiar to you, but, but basically it's acting on information that's not yet available to the public. It's using connections and, and, and resources to, to get information that guides fund distributions or, or buying and selling of stock, basically financial gain off of, out of information that's not yet widely dispersed. And, and there's probably much more nuance to that, but, but you get the picture. And, and so Michael Milken and, and Martha Stewart, and I think probably Martha Stewart for most of us, are the most high-profile names, at least that I think of, 
um, of those who have, who have been convicted of, of insider trading. Knowledge that's not yet available to the public. Well, not with a negative connotation, but, but in the same kind of um, inside information kind of way. That, that's a little bit of what happens here in this first chapter of John. John recognizes something through his participation in the baptism of Jesus. He recognizes who Jesus is before this has become uh, the, the, the proclamation of, of Jesus' ministry, it's, before it's become, if you will, public knowledge. He recognizes that the one whom he was called to prepare the way for has come. And, and in this moment of, of recognition, he becomes aware of this truth that, that is not yet known to others. And he begins to point to this truth. Now, it's interesting that the Gospel of John doesn't give us a first-hand account of the baptism of Jesus. We get this account through the eyes of John, kind of after the fact. And, and I, if, if when we get to heaven, one of my hopes, one of my kind of self-centered hopes, is that when we get to heaven, there is a, a video room where we can go and check out like the first-hand videos. I want to see, I want to be able to go see firsthand the events that we have read about and, and, and kind of imagined for, for these years through the Scriptures. And one of the events I want to see is I want to see what the, the baptism of Jesus looked like. And the reason is because I want to see the look on John's face when God reveals this to him. Because there's, that, there, there's a significance about John and Jesus that, that we don't explore a whole lot because there's really nothing said of it scripturally. But, but, but it's important to remember is that John and Jesus were related. You know, remember when, when Mary found out she was with child, when she was pregnant, she went and visited her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the mother of John, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth and Mary were, first, uh, were cousins, so John and Jesus were first cousins. And, and there's an interesting line in the scripture this morning. It's repeated twice when John says, I did not know him. And like I said, this is all speculation. But, but I think, I don't necessarily think that's a, a literal under, meaning that he didn't know him. Because I think John and Jesus knew each other. They were family. If Mary visited Elizabeth, I think it's probable that in the course of, of the years of Jesus growing up, that, that Mary and Elizabeth visited again, that John and Jesus maybe played together as kids. And, and I, I, I like that image of them being almost friends as kids. And, and I think that when, when John says, I did not know him, and this is speculation on my part, let me be clear, this is my speculation. When he says, I didn't know him, I think what John's saying is, I didn't know him. I didn't know who he was. I knew he was Jesus. I knew he was my younger cousin. I knew he was, you know, a, a friend or family member. I knew that Jesus, but I didn't know him. And I would love to see the look on John's face, the moment that God revealed to him who his cousin really was. I mean, I just, I just think that would be, that could have been funny. I mean, it, it absolutely could have been. I mean, can you imagine... John looking at Jesus and going, Jesus? Cuz, Jesus, family member. Jesus, we played together. You're the son of God. You are the son of God. Looking at him going, man, you don't tell me anything. You know? <laughs> I mean, just kind of wondering where this information came from. So, so again, th there's this connection. And, and who knows? I, I don't know. You don't know 
again, we'll have to wait until that day comes. We enter glory. Maybe we can get some of those answers. But, but, but in this moment, a lot of things shift and pivot in, in, the, in the narrative of the lives of these, these two men. For Jesus, the baptism becomes the beginning of his public ministry. It begins the beginning of his teaching. It becomes, becomes the marker, that, the catalyst for him to begin to gather disciples. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. So this is the start. For John, it's a shift. His ministry had been built around preparing the way, a baptism of water, a baptism of repentance, to prepare people in their hearts to receive the one who was coming after him. But, but in this moment, and as we see, it goes from get ready I'm preparing for one who will come to there he is. That's the Lamb of God. He goes from preparing the way to pointing to the truth. And so this information that he has is exactly what he does there with his two disciples. Now we know one of those disciples is Andrew. We know that because if you keep reading in John, it reveals that that one of these two disciples is Andrew. We don't know which of the twelve the other one was. But, but when John points out to them the Lamb of God, God's chosen one, he's doing something very, very significant. He is releasing them to follow Jesus. He's a rabbi who has his students, and he is releasing them to go and to follow Jesus. And I, and I think that's significant. I think that's, that's a profound moment of of an, that encapsulates what the gospel call for us is, and that is to point people to Jesus, to, to point them and to invite them into a relationship. And John does it in a way that totally checks his ego. Now, now we can sit there and say, well, yeah, he was doing it for Jesus, and, and, and maybe that's true, but, but I don't care who you are and how faithful you are. I think we all wrestle at some level with our egos. And, and for a teacher or a preacher or some sort of a leader, your ego is fed by the number of people that come to hear you. And, and you have to constantly, trust me, constantly check that. And, and I don't think that would have been different for John. I don't know. But in that moment, what he says to Andrew, what he says to the others, there's the one I've been preparing for. There's the one, the Lamb of God. And that's an interesting title, Lamb of God. We've had, we, we church history, we use that all the time. We've got 2,000 years of exploring what Lamb of God means. I don't necessarily knew that, believe that Andrew and the disciple understood what that image meant. There's some mention in some Hebrew writings, an image, an apocalyptic image of a Lamb of God who comes to judge. But we know very clearly that it took the disciples a long time to really grasp what chosen one, what Lamb of God, what God's Son, what Messiah really meant. So they, they don't fully grasp, but they know that John is, is turning them loose. And so they approach Jesus. And Jesus asks them a question. What do you want? What do you want? Now let that question sit for a moment. We're going to come back to it. But Andrew and the other disciple, don't answer him. Don't lose sight of the fact they don't answer the question. They, an they respond to Jesus' question with another question. Where are you staying? 
Jesus says, what do you want? And they respond, where are you staying? And, and that question is a little deeper than it would appear. I don't think it's just a matter of please tell us what your accommodations are here in Bethany. Probably he was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's where he usually was when he was in Bethany. But I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think their response is more in line with this. If we follow you, if we leave John and follow you, where are you going? Where is this journey going to take us? What do you want? Well, before we tell you what we want, why don't you tell us where you're going? And, and that, I think, is significant because for many, for me, if I'm honest, I know intellectually that that's not the way God works. I know that, that in life we don't get to see the road ahead of us. But I really would prefer God would do that. I really wish that, that I could ask Jesus, Lord, where are we going? Where, where's this road going to take me? You know, you, you call me to, to follow. Where, where? Where is it going? But that's, that's not the way it works. But I think we have to ask ourselves, if we ask that question, what is truly behind it? Because it comes back to that question, what, because what is want, what we want will really kind of indicate where we hope the Lord will go. What is it you want? And, and I think it's a, it's a powerful exercise to, to put yourself in the story. To not just read it as what has happened, but, but to read it in the sense of what would you answer Jesus if he asked you today that question? What do you want? You got up this morning. You, you got ready for church. You, you, you sacrificed other things you could have been doing. And you came here. Why? Why? What is it that you seek? What is it that you want? What is it that you hope for? What is the desire of your heart? And, and there's no end to the ways that we would personalize and answer that in our relationships and in, in our aspirations for life and in our, in our hopes and our dreams. What is it you want? But the question is, do we believe, do we believe, have we bought into the idea that God's sole desire in calling each of us to faithfulness is to accommodate our wants. To accommodate our wants. Because I think for many of us, for me, that if I really start to get honest and, and transparent, that, that, you know, my greatest desires are to, to live a life of, of faith, to put Christ first, and to to honor my family and my, my, that my family would be blessed. But, but as I start to move down that list, i got to admit that that list can become more and more self-centered as it goes. In fact, I can really, if I'm really honest, kind of think, well, Lord, if, if would, I'd really like this, this path to be quite comfortable. You know, I'd, I'd like to, to have, I'd like to be healthy. I'd like to, to have my, my needs met. Not just needs met, but I'd like to go above and beyond. You know, I, I'd like to enjoy the, the comfort and security of life, however we define that. And I don't think that's inherently wrong. That's inherently normal. But, but that's what I call a life that's, that's live, lived on the grid, 
On the grid for me represents the safe and secure places uh, where we can enjoy the, the comforts of life. And, and we think, I think of on the grid, I think of the, the, the power grids that we live on, where we can enjoy the comforts of, of electricity and plumbing and running water and all the things that, that we take for granted. And it's a, it's a great place to be on the right grid. I didn't realize this until Tony and I moved to uh, North Carolina when, when I went to school there, and, and we lived in Durham, Raleigh, Durham, or Durham for, for three years. The first winter that we lived there, there was a snowstorm in the Raleigh, Durham area. Now understand, this is a North Carolina snowstorm, so it's about two inches. Um, I know for Michiganers and Ohioans and those of you, that's, that's a dusting. But in Carolina, that's a major snowstorm, and it shut everything down. And the, the weight of the ice and things brought down the power lines. And in retrospect, people were without power for uh, at least over a week, I think, if not more. And so our power went. And it gets uncomfortable really quick. Well, I don't know how much after the storm, it was only a few hours, that our power came back. And it was a joyful and wonderful thing. Well, what we learned is the reason that we got power within hours, and some people it took days and days, is because we were on the right grid. And what I mean by the right grid is we shared a power grid with a local hospital. We didn't know it at the time. We didn't realize that. But that's what happened. It was an essential service. So those are the areas that get targeted. And all of a sudden, those things that you take for granted come back, and you're very, very, at least we were very, very happy. We felt bad for everyone else, but we were really happy for us. Now, flip side, I learned in September, after Irma hit, I'm not on the <laughs> And many of you are not on the right grid if you were here, right? Because for some, got power back quickly. And then some of us went three, four, five, six, maybe even longer days before we got our power back. You know, that I will sometimes hear it kind of idealized, living off the grid. You know, no power, no electricity, no running water, just rustic and the way God intended. And, and that maybe that really appeals to you. If I ever think that appeals to me, I got that knocked right out of me a week here with no power and electricity. There were a few moments I was happier than when I came home and I saw the porch lights at the parsonage on. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. We got power back. But the, but the grid for me represents that places, those places where we're comfortable, where I'm comfortable. Jesus doesn't call us to the places where we're comfortable. I think we have to let go of this notion that God's primary concern is for your comfort or your security. God's primary concern is with our faithfulness. God's primary concern is that our relationship with him is lived in such a way that we point people to Jesus. That's what John did. And so he asks the disciples, what do you want? And they respond, where are you going? Honest question, where are you going? And his final response to them is come and see. But notice he doesn't answer them either. Come and see. Come and start the journey. Come into the relationship. And let me show you what this journey, what this path looks like. And well, the rest is history. And in fact, we know that they were so overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus that after a day together, Andrew went and had to tell his brother, hey, you've got to come meet this guy. And he brings his brother to Jesus. And his brother's name is Peter. 
And one by one, they begin to form those band of disciples and those who would follow Jesus. But understand, that call, that call was blessed. But it wasn't blessed in the idea that you will have everything your heart desires. Because I believe that God desires to give us so much more than we even know that we want to ask for. Remember in Luke 9 when the would-be disciple comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, well, know this. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is not that kind of a path. But remember, we worship a God that meets us in our greatest place of need, not always our place of want. And when Jesus invites us into the relationship, he invites us into a relationship where our lives become reoriented. That our focus becomes reoriented. And I think that's why we start with that question, what do you want? Because when we're honest enough to recognize that very often our wants become self-centered, we become aware of the way Jesus begins to change that. To meet us in our place of need and to bless us in ways that are more abundant than we can begin to imagine. Tomorrow we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, Martin Luther King Jr., One of the quotes of Martin Luther King Jr. is is this. He says that the most urgent and and pressing question of of our day is this. How are you blessing others? How is your life blessing others? That's the invitation that Jesus gives to us. Not to a come and see so that you can see everything that I can do for you. But come and see so that you will experience the power of what I can do through you. And in doing that, it's amazing how we become blessed. You know, we, we talk about, I, I talk about being on the grid. Well, well, if you want to take that term grid and, and, and change it a little bit, you can talk about gridlock. Most of us know what it's like to be stuck in gridlock in, in, in real ways. You're driving down 301 and you get on the interstate and you're not paying attention to the overpass. I've done this before. I'm not looking at the cars and I just absentmindedly get into the, the on lane and all of a sudden, daggum it locked up. And there's nothing more mind-numbing and frustrating for me than sitting on the interstate. I would rather drive an hour and move than sit in traffic for 30 minutes. I can't stand it. Some of you are pointing. I catch you. You're, you're my people. It drives me nuts. To be in gridlock, you're stuck. You're, you're strangled, if you will. Well, well, many of us know what it's like to experience gridlock emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically. I believe Jesus frees that. But he frees it by turning us out of a self-centered focus and asking us how we can bless others. It's amazing that when we learn how to forgive, we let go of bitterness and poison within our own spirit. It's amazing that when we learn how to love, we more profoundly understand how to experience love. When we learn how to show grace, our hearts are even more aware of the grace God has shown us. It's amazing what God does for us. I don't believe for a second that life got easier for Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and the others that came to Jesus. But I know it got better. I know it got better. They stepped off the grid of, of personal concern for their own security and safety, and they found a life of loving God and loving others. That's what Jesus calls us to. Come and see. What do you want? What do you want? Own that. Answer that. But then are you open not just to what you want, but to being transformed so God can meet you at your place of need as you meet others in that place. Pressing question is this. How are you serving others? That's the invitation Jesus gives. Come and see. I pray, brothers and sisters, that we'd be willing to step off those 
safe grids of our lives and into the places Jesus would call. Amen? Friends, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds and spirits to hear that invitation. Come and see. Come and see. Not how I can meet your wants, but that I can meet your needs. And in doing so, be at work through you to, to meet the needs of others, to love God, to love others. Lord, help us to live into that, to step out of the safe places and onto the path of obedience. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Christ. Amen.